Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. As the intro says, it's a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, And, you know, hopefully if you've listened to a handful of our podcasts at this point, we're always telling you to think deterrence because that's what we do here at NIDS is we try to think about ways in which the United States can credibly deter our adversaries so that we don't have to fight them. We are a peace organization that wants to promote peace and ensure we're not always fighting forever wars because they're costly in both treasure and American blood. So with that said, of course, Jim Petrosky is with us. Curtis McGiffin is with us. And you know me. And today there has been a number of articles that have come out over the last three to five days. Uh, For example, Aaron Space Forces Magazine had an article Still, quote, in the beginnings of nuclear modernization, STRATCOM has low margin for delay. They talked about this sort of razor-thin margin we have to get all these modernization programs complete. And that's just for the three platforms that we're looking to recapitalize from the legacy arsenal. And then there was another article China preparing for war with U.S. Air Force Secretary says, and then, of course, that was Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, and he says, we're not prepared for war with China. And if you look at a giant map and you look at the distance that China has to go to get to Taiwan versus the distance the United States has to go to get to Taiwan, it's a really long way. And so, therefore, it's important for us to have the ability to do that if we're going to actually fight that war, which is what we're hoping to deter here at NIDS. With that very long introduction, Jim, Curtis, what say you on this? What seems to be a pretty bleak week of news. Well, the outlook doesn't seem to be very good. Uh, (laughs) Let let me get started here uh, on this in the sense that – so this is the week at the time that we're recording this podcast that the uh, Air Force Association or the Air and Space Force Association – I still can't get that right even though I'm a member. I apologize to you all – are having their big uh, September conference right out in uh, in the D.C. area. And the SECAF – Honorable Mr. Kendall uh, gave a, a as usual a, a you know a great speech, um, very candor uh, candor speech about you know what he sees is going on here with regard to China. You know, he's 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 become pretty famous for his quotes. Um, uh, for example, uh, you know, if it doesn't scare China, you know, it's not worth doing. That's a, a paraphrase. I'm not sure I'm I get a real quote, but it's a paraphrase of a quote, and uh, and so. Uh, he definitely has a good mindset about this challenge here. And we've all seen the memo from General Minahan that came out a couple of months ago where he basically charged the, uh, the his command, his Air Mobility Command, to be ready uh, possibly by 2025. 
uh, that was a fairly controversial one. Well, on September fifth, uh, um, uh, Secretary Kendall put out a, a memo to the Air Force, to Airmen and Guardians, you know, addressing these thoughts. And basically, he says in here that China is working uh, uh, to prevail even if the United States intervenes. And while China has focused on creating the regional conventional forces it believes it needs, China is also dramatically expanding its nuclear force and military space capabilities. We, can't, uh, we cannot sustain deterrence by standing still. Uh, I think it's a pretty accurate uh, description in all of this. And then he goes on to say here, um, that it's become clear to the entire senior leadership team, presumably of the Department of the Air Force, um, that we are not optimized for great power competition. And I guess while we can, again, appreciate the honesty of that assessment, one has to ask, why? After all of this time, in knowing that of the rise of China, we saw the the twenty uh, the twenty eighteen nuclear posture review and national security strategy of of President Trump clearly outlined this issue with China. Uh, so uh, you know here we are six years later uh, and we're we're not prepared. Uh, I'm, it boggles my mind. Yeah, well, I think you have to start with the purchase of the F thirty five. I mean, that wasn't necessarily going to prepare anybody to fight China. So th- that was that was sort of a wrong start to begin with. Yeah, Jim? yeah. So I saw this uh, these two articles, and when uh, when we were prepping for the uh, this program, I looked at both of these and said, "Why are these together?" But after I started thinking about this, you know, we look at China preparing for war. So it tells you something that I've sort of harped on in previous shows that we've we've done, and that is that you know a lot of the, especially the technological advances that we make are always preparation and they always have a huge lead time. And we're looking at China. They are preparing for war, according to the secretary. They're preparing for war. They're building up, they're, they're building their forces. They're looking ahead and they're putting things in place that will allow them to do that. And then it does connect very well to what we're saying about STRATCOM uh, in the beginnings of nuclear modernization, the difference is I don't see anything about the beginnings of China preparing. I sort of get the uh, uh, impression from this article that they are in the process well beyond the beginnings of preparing for war with the U.S. And it sounds like we're a bit behind in this nuclear modernization. And I think that's the point of this article has a low margin for delay. We are behind the power curve, according to this article, and we are we are needing to rapidly move forward. And I, I think one of the things that's most important to look at here is when it says margin for delay, where does that delay come from? Um, it would be interesting to think about that from a from a deterrent standpoint as we move forward and build, you know, our strategic view how we don't get behind, how we keep our foot somewhere near and or on the throttle so we can continue to move and be somewhat, you know, responsive. Um, actually, not be responsive, be ahead of being responsive to because that's where we stand now. So that's what I see. Curtis, what do you think about that? So so let me add to that, Jim, because I think it's a, it's a great observation here. And I pulled an article from 2021 when... General Hyten was retiring from the 
uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and his experience running the Joint Requirements Oversight Committee, the JROC, uh, having been a former STRATCOM commander and these sorts of things. And one of the observations he gave in an interview on his way out was that he wanted to warn his successor that the Defense Department and military services take far too long to develop new weapons and needed capabilities to fend off global threats, uh, while China and other adversaries leap ahead. He noted that every time he asked questions about this, the answer is always 10 to 15 years. And, um, and uh, the long development times in the U.S. drag on as China bounds ahead in testing and development. They don't seem to be afraid to make mistakes or, or, or have these failures in order to, to, to get ahead. And, uh, and he notes in this article in 2021 that the last five years or so uh, that the U.S. may have done anywhere from you know, five to ten hypersonic tests, while China may have done uh, estimates in the hundreds uh, and that was, you know, something around 2021. So this, uh, the article is very interesting in that it lays out these sorts of things. Uh, he notes this hesitancy uh, the, in philosophy uh, the, uh, about failure. And he, he pinpoints this, the article notes, he pinpoints the 2000 Quadrennial Defense Review, the QDR, as the moment everything changed. The document proclaimed that the U.S. no longer had adversaries and and so would uh, turn focus on the development not to meet threats, but to just increase capabilities for their own sake. And that this sort of removed all of the risk. And so then there was just, just this guidance that we're just we're not going to test until we're absolutely sure the test will succeed, because if we fail, we'll likely get cut. And so you don't get an opportunity to fail five, 10 or 15 times before you have success. Uh, you you actually fail once or twice, and then Congress would cut your budget, and you don't, and and that's it; it's gone. But you know, we always talk about science, scientific concepts here. You know, technology. You guys always point to me, but part of the scientific process is trying something, failing, learning, and going back. That's the process, and that's why you hear ten to fifteen years. But you maintain the capabilities. You go through that process of learning. And you na- maintain not only the capability, you maintain the skill set, you maintain the information, et cetera. Right. And we talked about this a few shows ago about, you know, back in 1992, we just stopped and we stopped our pit production, for example, which is a, a really big issue. We stopped the pit production and then we lost that capability. And what Russia did is they continued to do that by building new new nuclear weapons that weren't part of the that weren't part of the treaty and so what ended up happening is they maintained that capability so it takes less time to spin up we need as a country to develop a methodology that maintains that capability indigenous to our military indigenous to our industry indigenous to our universities so we have that capability to draw upon any time we need to be responding or developing right and we're starting to see that well, Adam, do you know why we stopped making pits for so long? Uh, well, I mean, hey, to be honest with you, we weren't going to need them anymore because I don't know if you guys were there for this, but uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and then we became friends with the Russians. And once you become friends with the Russians, I mean, you forgot they had they had status at NATO at mm-hmm. one point. 
And we thought the Russians were going to become right. NATO members. And so, I mean, amidst all that, plus, I mean, have you ever been to Rocky? What, had you ever been to Rocky Flats when it was there? And then whenever they shut down, we're producing a thousand pits a year. And then we had this, you know, super fun site cleanup and it was a mess. And therefore, you know, we just couldn't do this anymore and we're never going to fight a nuclear war and we're going mm -hmm. down, not up. And we will never need any more of these things. They'll be gone. I mean, I knew in 1991, I knew as a fan, you know, I was, I was a young guy at that point, and I knew at that point that nuclear weapons weren't going to be here by that time I hit 48. So, you know, I just, why would we ever want to build more pits? That's, I mean, that, that's why. All right. So, Jim, it. so what, where we are now Jim, is what's crazy. your answer on that? Yeah, but interestingly, if you think about it, we, you know, what we, what we look at and what we talked about in previous episodes is that what's the maximum number we need for deterrence? And my question might flip it out around and say, as we lost that capability, what is the minimum number? And maybe we're starting to see that because we haven't, we haven't kept our foot on the throttle and people saw you know, people, uh, China, primarily Russia, uh, North Korea, uh, Iran, they've seen that we don't have enough possibly to deter them. And that may be the issue that we're facing today. Well, uh, and as a peace organization, I don't want to see us go to war because we aren't prepared. Right. Well, I would say this. I believe that one of the directives in, during the Obama administration going into the New Star Treaty was that we could not do any, you know, we could make new weapons. We could only maintain the old weapons. And so uh, so that's, you know, part of that reason why we... We stopped. It was a political decision in that regard uh, as we move forward there. Do you, do you remember something called RNAP right. and the RRW? Right. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they they got they got killed. It was a right. bloody, ugly thing. This they got would be slaughtered. The robust you nuclear know, earth penetrator. Nuclear. That's correct. But, yeah, and the reliable, and the reliable replacement, replacement warhead. warhead that's right. and, yeah, but, and then, so now here we are. And we're at a point where we've got, we're going to replace legacy systems with That's better right. legacy systems, you know, better versions of a legacy system. We're not going to actually build the kinds of systems that will do the most good to deter the North Koreans or, you know, the Chinese. And we're not going to move them anywhere. We're not going to make them harder to hit. We're not going to do anything that would make the U.S. deterrent more, you know, deterrent e because that's just not what we do but, but that but that Go was ahead, my Jim. point in talking about these two articles and seeing these two articles is it's a time yeah we, we may not be able to make a difference today but it's a time for us to look at our strategic our and, and international policies and procedures and edicts that allow us to stay on top of things we should learn from the history not repeat it and so as we look to this past, how do we as a country make that change? How do we change the policy, change the future, change? And I'll, I'll say another piece here that I didn't bring up earlier. How do we change the concepts of the logistic, you know, uh, tale that we have uh, have to fight in the U.S. system that the China, China doesn't have to. They just basically say, do it. You have to. Now, 
I like freedom as a country. I get that. But there's got to be a way to make this work in which we have a logistic system that is responsive to the needs and can, and can change the technology and change the uh, capability uh, much more quickly than we have in 10 to 15 years. It's too slow. Well, I think the number one thing you do to deter the Chinese is uh, you you give Taiwan nuclear weapons. That's number one. And then number two, you sell them an old Ohio-class submarine or, you know, um, you sell them a Los Angeles class with uh, so that they can put their own SSBNs on them or so that they can put their own, you know, uh, S, you know, their own nuclear cruise missiles on them. And you enable the Taiwanese to defend themselves against the Chinese and to put China at risk. And I think the Chinese would take that very seriously. I think they would take... Yeah. Uh, if you invade us and if you threaten our sovereignty, we will respond. I think they'd take so don't you think, sort of Adam, like, though, if you if you placed nuclear weapons or you allowed Taiwan to to have nuclear weapons, however that might be, to proliferate in such a way, why would that not actually create the war that we're trying to deter at this point? Right. Why would it not? Well, I mean, it, it would only create the war that we want to deter if the Chinese found out ahead of time. And they wanted to engage in a preemptive war. But once the Taiwanese, if it, let's suppose a fiat accompli, the Taiwanese get nuclear weapons before the Chinese know about it, then it's too late. You know, it's it's too late at that point. And then the time the Chinese have to think about, you know, am I willing to trade Beijing and, uh, you know, in Shanghai for Taipei? Am I willing to do that? I don't know. I mean, you know, that maybe that's when she finally says, you know, hey, uh, you know, Taiwan has never actually been part of China because mm -hmm. it never has. The history of Taiwan, it's it's never been part. It's never been part of Imperial China. It wasn't part of the Republic. It's never been part of of, uh, you know, the PRC. It's, you know, the, the, maybe he says, you know what, we've done some. You know, we've we've looked at history and we've discovered that Taiwan has, in fact, always been something that we never wanted because it was nothing but, you know, aboriginal tribes and pirates and Europeans. And we kicked the Hakka out and sent them there. And so really, we just we don't want it. It's a junk place. And look at them. They're not even Han Chinese. We don't want them. And maybe they make that they they rediscover a new history because that's that's sort of the Chinese way to do things is that is that you discover a new history and the history is always well you know really Tibet has always been part of China or you know Inner Mongolia really belongs to China or Manchuria is really part of China or you know the Aka people really are part are Chinese or you know you name the group. And they've discovered why history makes them part of China. And so maybe they could probably discover a new history that says these are not part of China. I suppose it could go both ways. Right. Well, I think uh, my argument there is, is that while um, uh, I'm hard pressed to argue that nations like responsible nations like Taiwan and South Korea, if they want to have nuclear weapons, ought to have the right to have the weapons they need to ensure their sovereignty. 
But I think at this point, it may be a little late to inject them unless it's done covertly. And then all of a sudden, you know, they somehow say, well, you know, cause for deterrence to work, it can't be secret. They gotta, they gotta be able to project that. They gotta be able to, to, to tell the Chinese that they have this capability. But, but I think it'll be perceived that we gave it to them and, uh, and therefore, uh, that could post possibly cause, uh, the, the conflict that we're trying to avert. Um, but, but let me ask you this then. Yeah. I don't, th- I just don't think the Chinese, I don't think the Chinese say, let's yeah. go at it. I, I mean, if you, if that's a great thing about fiat accomplice is you know, once they're done, you know, I mean, how many times has this happened to the, mm-hmm. to us where once it happens, you're just like, well, we didn't want that to happen, but it did. And, we're not willing to go to war over it. I mean, we do that all the time and we've been historically been the most powerful nation in the world. And yet we, we pursue our interests and is a nuclear armed Taiwan uh, is war with that country in China's interest. And I don't think it is. I mean, we know why China wants Taiwan. We know why they want Taiwan. But are they willing to suffer the devastation of their? Because Taiwan would only ever have enough, you know, to engage in a, you know, a, a strategic policy that says we'll destroy the of things course. you value most. If that's all they well, did, would be the, able to the do. Essence. And is that so that you know at some point we have to stop worrying about what lo- seems right and what looks right. And there's, there are hard strategic realities that you have to truly think about and you have to put politics aside in terms of, you know, of being offended or shocked or whatever. And you have to think, you know, how do you actually achieve your objectives? It's, it's sort of one of those, you know, Lord mm-hmm. Palmerston, the foreign minister, you know, of Great Britain was often asked, you know, is who are you know, I think I'm paraphrasing who are Britain's allies. And he says, Britain has no allies. It's not friends nor enemies, only interests. Yes. uh, Hey, so let me, yeah, let me ask a question. I'll borrow a moment for, as uh, from the host. Uh, When we look at, when we look at this, uh, both from a a policy and a and a engineering physics sort of technical problem, where is it that, um, where is it that, that China is, uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Do we do we think that they can do what they what we what we really fear that they can do? Jim, you want you know I've talked a lot. Why don't you say something about technical? Well, you know their technical capabilities. Again, their, their their technical choice has always been to to use their nuclear weapons sort of as the the big the big bomb concept and use their conventional weapons as their as their uh, especially their high technology as their as their cornerstone. And so uh, are they capable? Uh, it depends on what you mean. I, I see, I see sort of an inverse in the way China works and maybe I'm alone in this in the way I look at their use, their use. And when I say use, I'm not just talking about a deterrent standpoint, but their actual policy toward nuclear weapon use as being uh, more the sh- strategic large weapon, take out large cities, et cetera, uh, uh, capability and their influence comes from their conventional uh, uh, forces that they seem to be very ready to to do, and um, and I think that poses an interesting problem when it comes to escalation, 
And I, I've always wondered about that. In fact, my question to Adam was going to be, as you talked about us arming Taiwan, what about extended deterrence? Is that the right way to go? Or is an extended presence a better way to go where we have at least a strong presence in and around Taiwan in order to defend them conventionally at first if needed? But none of that, when you look at it from a strategic standpoint, and I'm probably the worst person to talk the strategic part of this. The two of you are much more in tune with that. From a strategic standpoint, which one keeps us from having the escalation, the extended deterrence or the arming of Taiwan? And I'm not sure I know where that is. But from a technical standpoint, I still see China's, you know, from from the the, the desire to build new new nuclear weapons and more nuclear weapons, they obviously have the capability. They're obviously doing it. They're already announcing that they're doing it. They're building the capability to launch and and, and uh, uh, launch uh, and and deliver those nuclear weapons. That seems to be the defensive posture. But the offensive posture, at least what I see has been very technology and very sort of, um, uh, what can I say, uh, uh, technology-oriented in terms of, you know, cyber uh, cyber attacks, space attacks, you know, taking out the eyes and the ears, which is uh, sort of a different way of fighting than we would think of in, say, a Russian kind of a scenario. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess sort of the first thing we had – we we assume that there's a fight over Taiwan. And the first thing we've got to figure out is Taiwan a hill worth dying on. You know, for the United States, you you come to the you gotta to come to the conclusion, is this a war we will fight and is it worth it? And are are our vital interests, you know, in Taiwan and then let's assume you know, cause if you say no, then you 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 know you sort of you arm you sell a bunch of stuff to the Taiwanese you make some money, uh, you help out the defense industry, and then you wish them well, and then you go to the United Nations and demand that that China stop what it's doing, and you nod and wink at the the Chinese, and then you let Taiwan fall. I mean that's if that's if you don't care if if you say hey listen you know Taiwan is a democracy of twenty five million people. It is not part of China, never has been. Uh, it's It has, you know, it's the largest manufacturer of, you know, advanced microchips in the world. We can't allow the Chinese to get that technology. You know, they've been a good, they've been a good uh, partner. I mean, they're not allies anymore, but they've been a good partner to the United States. We want free people. We want the, you know, we, we cannot allow a democracy to a, a viable free democracy, right? It's, this is no Ukraine. Taiwan is no correct, Ukraine. Correct. Taiwan is an actual viable free, you know, rule of law kind of country. It, if that matters, if protecting democracy matters, if allowing autocracy not to rule the world, it, now this is an expansionist, right? I'm not a neocon saying, Hey, listen, the way we're going to make everybody free is we're going to invade them you know, supplant their forms of government with democracies and then nobody will fight each other. That's the neocon approach. But this is, hey, if we're defensive, then really I don't think conventional conflict against, you know, Taiwan v. China is a feasible defensive approach. I mean, it could buy time. You know, if they do really well, they buy time. But in the end, the Americans have got to come in. You know, and the Americans have got a, you know, they've got a steam, you know, what is it, 11,000 kilometers, I think, something like that, 11,000 miles. 
and eventually get there unharmed, which the Chinese are not going to allow to happen if they can. And then you got to do a bunch of stuff and then you got to keep, you know, feeding that beast. So, so to me, you, you gotta, you gotta get the nukes. <laughs> well, that's your, I mean, that's really your only feasible option because China's rapacious. You got to see the map of China and all of the territories. I mean, China has, if you look at what is traditional China, what has for thousands of years been China versus what is the state that the PRC has conquered, that the communist Chinese have conquered, they more than doubled the size of China. This is a rapacious state. It is not a defensive nation. It, you know, that, that's just a fallacy. It's a fallacy. They're rapacious and they want Taiwan. All right. So um, as we look, as we, as we look at whether, you know, looking back at, at, at what I, what I think, the Air Force should be thinking about is as as we're looking at whether or not we're we're quote unquote ready. You know, are we are we preparing or why are we not prepared? Uh, you know, those sorts of questions. You know, I, I look at this idea here that what is what can the adversary do and not do? And uh, you know, we're we're led to believe that there's a lot of capability here, but I think what we don't know is is the is that they don't have a lot of experience in this matter, in, you know, in uh, great power competition themselves, especially on the battlefield. We, we, there are any allied support they might have specifically the no limits agreement with Russia is still very questionable. We don't know what that really means, how that might manifest itself um, in the middle of a, of a conflict of which the world opinion will likely turn against China as much as, as it has against Russia with regard to the Ukraine conflict. But I think my biggest fear is is the inadvertent escalation factor, because I'm not convinced that China understands the impact of inadvertent escalation. And and you know again the educator in me shows that you know inadvertent escalation is the deliberate actions not perceived by the adversary or China to be escalatory, but is perceived by the enemy as escalatory. So in other words. China may view a first strike as something, and, and Adam, you've talked about this in past podcasts, that China might perceive a first strike as a very defensive thing, yet we would perceive that as a very escalatory thing, right? Um, you know, an attack on Guam uh, with an IRBM uh, in their minds is part of the order of battle, but we would perceive attacking U.S. territory as an escalatory action, right? So this this un, um, not being able to communicate our red lines for whatever reason by by omission or commission is something that I think we need to be very careful about, and that is something we can fix that we can fix now prior to any potential conflict. And by fixing those and declaring those red lines to prevent escalation, inadvertent escalation, we can actually add to the uh, the cap- or capacity of successful deterrence, in my opinion. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I agree. And I think the, the, the important part, which I brought up earlier, is you know, deterring the war, any war at all, uh, stopping it beforehand. But certainly the escalatory part is is the is the secondary issue. And so, so one of the, the, one of the ways that I see this is 
not only just using the military might, but we also have to look at our partnerships. And I agree that isolation is part of that. China has a partner with North Korea. China has partnership with um, with Russia, I think. Uh, oh, um, but you can use and leverage other countries, Japan, certainly, uh, India, certainly, Australia. You know, they have leverage in the area as well. And I think I think that often gets overlooked as well, either from the standpoint of escalation or, or deterrence, but also from a standpoint of escalation. We have to very signal very well to our to to uh, to our partners, to our to our treaty partners that we uh, that what we mean and how we mean to to see this order of battle go. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the bigger the bigger concern I have is because that's where the escalation comes from. And, and could I add one more observation to that? And, and Adam, you mentioned the UN. Um, I, I'd like to remind our listeners that Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations, and both China and Russia are vetoing members of the of the United Nations, which really makes the organization fairly neutered in this issue, uh, and uh, not very helpful in that regard. And again, you know, uh, that was a decision made in 1972. Taiwan was in the UN until then, uh, so. Uh, and of course, a voting member uh, in the 1950s that led to the Korean War. Uh, so, understanding how uh, how these responsible parties can act in organizations like that really contributes to the success of these organizations. Uh, and I just think we, we, we've we're between a rock and a hard place because we've allowed too many pages of the calendar to go by. And when you add General Hyten's observations that it just takes too long to do anything in our bureaucracy, and I am paraphrasing his thoughts, and if if he doesn't like the way I did that, I'm happy to get the email. Um, the um, and then this idea that we got to catch up, and that there's innovation in the services. I, I I'm I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that there is a a culture of innovation and reward in the in the services, specifically the the Department of the Air Force, because um, sometimes it's it's really hard to see that. The bureaucracy still takes over. Good ideas are still tamped down uh, in the name of conformity, and this is the, always way we, the, the way we've always done business sort of mentality. So I think there's a lot of work that still has to be done culturally if we think that that innovation is going to um, start solving some of these problems. Because uh, I'm not, not sure that the culture, again, is ready to implement innovative ideas, much less listen to them. Because implementing innovative ideas uh, may rub people and leaders incorrectly, specifically to maybe the, 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 the politics of the day or the, the amount of resources that are willing to be provided uh, to do certain things. Uh, I guess, you know... It's, um, I mean, nobody accuses a government bureaucracy of being innovative, right? The whole point of a bureaucracy is to go before Congress and say, I need more money to do less. That's what bureaucracies by nature do. You got to give me more money because I can't do my mission with what you, what, with what you give me. That That's a bureaucracy. I mean, you know, a private company says, hey, the way I succeed is I do more and I do it for less. 
which is right. the exact opposite approach. So, and the military is the worst of all bureaucracies because it's a bureaucracy that is, you know, it's a risk averse bureaucracy. And so why would you take risk? And, and what happens, you know, this is part of the 24 hour news cycle. What happens when any risk is taken and let's say, you know, a new type of airplane crashes or something, you know, if you go back to when, uh, you know, Benny Shriver was, was building, you know, the ICBM force, they were crashing, you know, they're crashing rockets all the time. They were crashing missiles and, and that was just part of the process. Could you imagine today crashing and, you know, having things blow up on the launch pad? And I mean, it would be, you know, every 24 hour, television station would just, you know, it would be all over it and this is failure and there's a waste of taxpayer dollars. And there's just no ability to do anything any innovative anymore. And I, the number one example I'll give you is the current nuclear modernization program. Did we ever ask what, what exactly do we need for a, a nuclear arsenal? What do we need? We didn't, we never asked. We were going to spend a trillion dollars on modernization. And we didn't ask what we actually need. What we said is, well, we're going to take what we already have and we're going to build new versions of it. And the B-21 sort of looks like the, you know, the B-2. And then we're going to build a replacement for the Minuteman 3. And then we're going to build the new sub that's slightly better than the old sub. And But we never actually said, what do we actually need for our for an arsenal, how are we going to deter a growing China, Russia? You know, we didn't ask that question because there's no innovation. There is literally none. It's it's essentially you know the stuff that goes on at AFA, which is going on right now, where they have you know innovative airmen and all that. It's all kabuki theater. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually change anything. Yeah, remember that in, in innovation requires taking risk and freeing up minds to be able to take that risk. And you have to accept failure in order to meet success. That's the reality of you know, a lot of this technology development. And you see that in small businesses, but you don't see that within the military. No. Well, I tell you what, we, we've run a little long, but let me, uh, let me just give Curtis, if you want to have your last word, Oh my gosh. I thought I gave it. Uh, I think just, I, 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 let me just sum this up. I really like where secretary Kendall's head is in all of this. What I just don't like is the bureaucracy is gotta be drug along and it's just not there yet. And it's probably not going to be in the timeline that we needed to be there. There is, there is a potential conflict um, looming and it, our mission is to deter that is our mission. We must deter. And uh, and if we don't deter, it is going to be very expensive in many ways to fight a war of any sort. And so we must maintain the emphasis in deterring. And as Herring Khan always said, that the best way to look willing is to be willing. Great, you know, great point. I'll give you two things to to think about on the way out the door. In the history of the United States, there has only ever been one federal bureaucracy that actually said we should no longer exist. One in history. That was the Civil Aeronautics Board 
during the presidency of Gerald Ford, where the head of the Civil Aeronautics Board actually went before Congress and said, you should disband us without us because the Civil Aeronautics Board set airline fees for actual flights, for all the flights. And Congress listened and they disbanded in real dollars. Airline flights are cheaper today than they were in 1976. And that doesn't even account for all the inflation. That's Mm -hmm. the only time in history it's happened. Bureaucracy hangs on for dear life. Last point. Here's the, here's the solution. The solution is take the department of defense, privatize it, hire Eric Prince to be the secretary of defense Give him $250 billion a year with no strings. Just say, defend the nation. And I guarantee you we'll get a better Department of Defense. Guarantee. I don't know if he knows anything about nuclear weapons or not. Go ahead, Jim. Doesn't matter. He'll figure it out. I I have nothing to say after that. (laughs) I think that ends our podcast today. All right, people. We got to get Adam back on his meds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. Close us out. This was our this was our radical uh, radical thoughts uh, podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we we were unbridled in our thoughts today. So, but uh, in reality, we went a little long. So, thanks to you, the listeners, for hanging on that extra time. Of course, you're listening to another great and thoughtful episode of the Nuclear View, where. We always, always, always encourage you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.